on or turn in your Bible, depending on how you do it, to Genesis chapter 6, please. And just as we said, children that need to head out to Children's Church are welcome to do so. Adults who wish to sneak out may not. Let's pray together, please. Father, this morning there is a tremendous weight to your word. And I would pray that this morning you will open our eyes and our hearts to you. That we might understand well your grace and your justice. And I pray, Lord, that... um, In this journey in your word, nothing will be blasé, nothing will be typical, but rather that we would encounter you in your word. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for communicating truth to us. And we ask that you will help us to hear and understand and obey this day. In Christ's name, amen. Have you found Genesis chapter 6? Eventually, we'll get to verse 9 is where we'll start. But Let me ask you a question, though, first. Have you ever failed at proofreading something that you wrote yourself? You know, like, you write a sentence, and there's a missing word. Or there's a form instead of a from. And for whatever reason, you can't see it. You know, it's obvious. If, you, if you'd read somebody else's writing, it would have stood out to you like crazy, right? But... For whatever reason, because you wrote it, you skip it. Why does that happen? Teachers will tell you that the reason we do this is because our brains get familiar with what we intend to say. And so our brains trick us into thinking that we have written what we meant. And then we put something stupid out on Facebook because of it. (laughs) The thing is, though, we make mistakes like that with the Bible if we're not careful. Sometimes we're so familiar with a passage of Scripture, and that familiarity with that passage leads us to miss the passage's beauty and the passage's significance. Sometimes we get so used to a story that we miss its intent, or we miss its tone, or we miss its actual meaning. And if ever there was a story that we know so well that we sometimes don't know it at all, the account of the flood in Genesis chapters 6 7 and 8 is one of those. It happens so early in the Bible, we let it slip away from our minds. We, we see it so often in children's storybooks that we miss the terror. We assume that we know what happened so well, and we don't let our minds see the details. So this morning, let's take a moment to revisit the familiar story of Noah and the ark and the flood But let's do our best to allow the Word of God to speak to us afresh because this is far bigger, far bigger than some giant floating zoo to paint on nursery walls. This is a true story of the terrifying wrath of God and God's overwhelming grace. So the plan is like this. We're going to work through the text of these two and a half chapters to get the story. And then at the end, we will look back and find five really quick applicational points. But first, let's look at the story. Genesis 6, 9 and 10 is where we begin. These are the generations of Noah. 
Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So here we begin with an introduction of the story. Back in Genesis chapter 5, we found out that Noah was 500 years old when he had his three sons. I thought having kids at my late 30s was a bit old. because I don't like getting up in the middle of the night, but you know what? Well, in 6, 8, Genesis 6, 8, we find out that Noah found favor in the sight of God. And the Bible describes Noah with three very positive statements, right? It says he's righteous. It says he's blameless. It says he walked with God, kind of like Enoch did in Genesis chapter 5. And Noah, this man of God, stands out as a dramatic contrast with the corrupt world of his day. Look at verses 11 and following. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So, compared to Noah's threefold description of righteousness, God says three times here the earth is corrupt. Man is about as sinful as he can get. Violence cruelty, sexual immorality, all reign in the world of Noah's day. Men are turning their backs on their creator and they're determining to do things their own way and it makes the world completely corrupted. And God makes a decision. God will destroy the world. All humanity will die. Don't let that roll past you too quickly. Every living person on the face of the earth, other than Noah and his family of eight, will die. Verse 14 and following. God says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door in the ark in its side. Make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I shall establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So here we get the instructions and a promise. God tells Noah, build for yourself an ark. And I love the old comedy routine where the guy goes, great, God, uh, what's an ark? <laughs> the word here, ark, is only used one other time in the Old Testament. It refers to what Noah built, and it refers to the basket that Moses rode in, in the Nile. It's the only places that word for ark is used. 
But here it's really obvious that what is to be built is something that's going to end up looking like a big old cargo ship. And God tells Noah what kind of wood to use. Go for wood. We have no idea what that is, by the way. And God tells Noah to use pitch to treat that wood, to cover it, to make the ark waterproof. And the ark is supposed to have three decks, three main levels, right? And there are to be rooms, multiple enclosures, cages for the critters. Now, how large was this ship, you ask? At minimum, this ship would have been 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. Consider, please, that a football field, for those of you who are living human beings that have seen a football field, a football field is 300 feet from goal line to goal line. This ship Noah built was a football field and a half long, and it was as tall as a modern four- or five-story building. That's based, by the way, on the smallest possible translation of the word cubit. The ark could have been bigger by at least 15%, 525 feet long. The available floor space on the ark, how much room do we have? Anywhere between 68,000 and 79,000 square feet. That is bigger than my house by law. Don't assume, by the way, that we got those three measurements, so the ark has to be a box squared off. Could have been, but we don't know. But Noah had a long time to learn what a ship's shape should have been. And there's nothing in this description that tells us it has to be a box. The volume of this ship would have been greater than over 500 railway stock cars. Little research tells us that the size of the ark was as large as or larger than any ancient wooden ship ever built. But the same research also shows us that the proportions of the ship, its length compared to its width compared to its height, are perfect for a ship to, that can float in rough sea conditions. You change the shape of the ship and the ship won't float or it will easily founder. Now, a couple questions. How could one man have made such a ship, you ask? Who said he did? Noah very well could have hired out labor because you know what? Even people who thought Noah was nuts for building a giant boat would likely have happily cut wood and hammered boards together so long as the paychecks kept clearing. Right? Look, any of you who have jobs know there are times you do stupid things for people as long as they keep paying you, right? The people that followed Noah did this. I mean, there's plenty of other places in the Bible where it says things like, and Solomon set up the great pillars in front of the temple. You think Solomon picked them up by himself, the 18-foot tall gold-covered pillars? I don't think so. He had help. Well, we can assume the same thing with Noah. He had help. 
God also tells Noah, make an opening near the roof of the ark. It was a window of some sort. We don't exactly get the instruction. Could it have been a skylight? Maybe. Was it an opening around the roof? Maybe. Was it several windows? Maybe. We don't know for sure, but God knows something. God knows to tell Noah that he has to make the ark so that the animals can breathe, that fresh air can circulate in and bad air can get out, which is good when you're in with critters because the foul air doesn't kill them or the other passengers. And God tells Noah it's going to carry representative animals of every kind. So then another question, how many animals would this have been? You guys remember the old question, right? How many animals did Moses take on the ark? None. Moses didn't build it. Noah did, right? But it's a good one. You can do this trick, your friends. Uh, we, we can't say for sure because we don't know for sure what the word kind meant. Now, we do know that Noah didn't have to bring the fish. That's nice, right? We, he didn't have to bring the insects. They could take care of themselves. Too bad about the mosquitoes. But God, God tells him, take the critters. But we don't know what scientific level in our modern understanding of kinds of animals is meant by the biblical word there for kind. But here's the thing we know. Noah did not have to bring chihuahuas, St. Bernard's, and beagles. All he had to bring was the ancestor of all dogs. So probably something more timber wolf-like. He didn't bring something that looks like whatever the Lekowitzes have in their house. <laughs> yeah, it was not something you could put in your pocket. Uh, so, but here's the thing, right? Whatever there are, are kinds. Here's what we know. As Christians, we reject Darwinistic evolution. We don't believe that, that kinds turn into other kinds. But we, as Christians, do understand that what people call microevolution, one, one sort of type of animal adapting and growing and changing so that a timber wolf does eventually become a big dog and the little, you know, yepper dogs as well, that, that happens over time. Genetic modification is normal throughout human history. Well, according to Scripture's description of this event, and the best guesses that scientists can come up with, the large number is that around 16,000 different animals would have been needed. Most of which, by the way, are small. You ask how large or how small? Well, it depends. Some people would say that the average size of an animal is barely the size of a sheep. Some say as small as a rabbit. But that's how many would have had to live on the ark for the period of the flood. But other studies are being done questioning whether the word kind means what we call genus or even perhaps family. And that would argue for an even smaller number of animals, the lowest estimate I've seen being only 2,000. Also, God, because God's really pretty smart, God would have sent Noah, like when, like when it comes to the big critters like elephants and dinosaurs, you don't send the full-grown ones. <laughs> you bring little ones, making their space requirements minimal. Dinosaurs hatched from eggs, and most dinosaurs actually didn't grow to be that enormous. So assuming that the animals didn't require more space than animals do in modern farm enclosures or laboratories, this space was easily available in the design of the ark. One author says this, without tiering, which means stacking, without tiering of cages, only 47% of the ark's floor space would have been necessary. What's more, many animals could have been housed in groups which would have further reduced the required space. Now, ain't nobody require, nobody's saying, hey, this was comfortable. But it's very much possible. 
God also tells Noah to get supplies for the animals that he's going to transport. Noah had to feed a good amount of animals for a fairly long period of time. Verses 17 and 18 of this section, God makes two promises in the middle of the, of the uh, instructions. He says to Noah, I really am going to flood the earth and I really am going to kill everything on the planet that has the breath of life in it. But God also tells Noah, there's a covenant coming. There's a covenant coming between God and Noah. God is going to be faithful to his promises. God will not turn his back completely on his ultimate plan. It's not going to happen. Then in verse 22, we see that Noah did everything God commanded him. Believing the words of God led Noah to do what God said. Faith led to action. As, by the way, faith always, always leads to action and obedience. Chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For on seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So here we're sort of winding down, right, from the instructions. Now God is telling Noah, it's about time to wrap up. you got a week. You're supposed to take pairs of all kinds of critters onto the ark, including seven sets of all the clean animals. That's going to be important for sacrifices later. And then you can notice later, verse 5, Noah does what God says. It's a good thing because Noah doesn't obey God. Nothing lives. Then verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah. As God had commanded Noah, and after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So here we go again, summary type statement. Righteous Noah takes his family on the ark. God helps Noah get all kinds of animals onto the ark. Uh, this is good. Now, how much work did Noah leave into that last week? We don't know for sure. But what we know is, here in the last week, he gets, gets the, sort of the, the, the final warning. Get ready, it's about to happen. Noah was 600 years old when this happened. He had his sons, by the way, when he was 500 years old. It's possible Noah had a full century to work on the ark. By the way, a guy that has a full century to learn how to build a ship, he's got some time. He could have learned carpentry. He could have learned shipbuilding from people who knew how to build ships anyway. He could have learned about sailing. He could have learned about how to feed critters. A guy can learn a lot in 100 years. Especially one who's already lived and learned for 500 years previously. I bet Noah was a pretty smart dude. Then, 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth. 
And the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. So here we go. It's the exact date in Noah's life when the flood came. We see again Noah and his family and all of the animals are on board. And the people, they entered the ark. The people got on the day the rain started and God himself shut the door. What must that have sounded like? And we see that rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. But a lot more is happening here than a rainstorm. Waters fell from the sky and rose from the ground. Think back, if you will, to day three of creation. Remember we talked in Genesis 1 about God just moving the oceans back, pulling them back from the land by his power, allowing dry land to rise. What what force and power that must have been. Well, here, along with rain and flooding fountains, it's like God is releasing that hold on the waters so that a flood of unimaginable proportions is coming on the earth. It is as if God is uncreating on what he had done on day three of his creation. What would this have done to the planet? I don't have that kind of scientific knowledge to tell you. But earthquakes and volcanic eruptions... Geysers and rock slides and other chaos would have broken forth on the planet. Truly, the whole surface of the entire earth would have changed. Look at 17 to 24. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all of the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. In verses 17 through 20, we see that the flood was so dramatic that the entire surface of the globe was covered. The highest mountains that existed in that time were covered by more than 20 feet of water. Nothing, nothing on earth would ever be exactly as it had been before. Is this possible? Mount Everest is 29,000 feet tall, after all. But you know what? We actually don't know how tall the tallest mountain was in the pre-flood geography. The flood itself, along with the activity of the tectonic plates during this period, it would have caused the formation of mountains and mountain ranges that had never existed before. 
So there's no reason, if you believe that the flood is possible at all, if you believe God could have created the world, there's no reason to believe that God couldn't have sent a flood that could cover the whole earth, including the mountains, by a great deal. And then in verses 21 to 23, we see a slow repetition of this singular fact. Everything died. All animals died. All people died. The sinful earth was completely destroyed. Only Noah and the living beings in the ark survived. Then verse 24 tells us that though the rains fell for 40 days, the waters prevailed on the earth. They kept rising. They kept going up. They kept sloshing around the earthquaking earth. Shaking the land, destroying the land for 150 days, five months of total destruction. It is impossible for us to feel this because the horror here is beyond us. The devastation here is like nothing you've ever dreamed. There's one floating ship, everything else is dead. This is no pretty little picture to put in a coloring book, it's ugly. And it's awful. People died. People were living their lives. They were doing business as usual. They were getting married. They were having children. They were having parties. They were building houses. And suddenly the windows of heaven opened up and the ground rumbled and it broke apart and mountains moved and walls of water came crashing down over the people, crushing them, drowning them, sweeping them away, utterly destroying them. This is not a little cutesy children's fairy tale. This is the darkest moment moment in real life. In 2004, a quarter of a million people died under the crushing weight of a tsunami in Thailand and India. In Noah's day, the entire world died under the crushing weight of God's wrath. Genesis 8.1 But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So chapter 7, when it closed, it was sort of suspenseful. What in the world's going to happen? Is everything going to die? Are the people on the boat going to die? No. God remembers his promises. He remembers Noah. And then what we see next is God now starts making the waters go back down. He doesn't do it in a single day like in Genesis chapter 1 on day 3, right? Instead, he reverses that 150-day process of the prevailing waters. And then after Noah had been on the ark for five months, the ark touches down on a mountaintop. My best guess, somewhere on a mountain range in what is now Turkey, but you can't pinpoint that geography that well. And even though the ark is now sitting still and the floods aren't rising anymore, it takes another two and a half months before Noah can see the tops of the other mountains. And then Genesis 8, 6 to 12, at the end of 40 days, after all that, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro on the water until the, sorry, it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. 
Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So here we go. We've got 40 days after the tops of the mountains were seen. There's a couple of birds flying around just to help Noah find out how far down the waters had gone. Then, 13 to 19, in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering from the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. So... It was on probably Noah's 601st birthday, he takes the cover off the ark. And he waits for two, almost two full months before finally receiving from the Lord the command to get off the ship and to begin his new life on the earth. And in many ways, the earth is fresh and new. It's like creation happened again. The waters have pulled back. The landscape and the geography are brand new. And Noah tells his creatures, be fruitful and multiply, just like he did back in Genesis 1. Now, it had been the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year when the flood came. He and his family walk off the ark on the 27th day of the second month of his 601st year. That is more than a full year that Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives and all the animals spent on the ark. If you think you've had some long-staying house guests. (laughs) Then 20 to 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down. I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. At the beginning of the story, we have Noah building something. At the end of the story, we have Noah building something. This time it's not an ark, but an altar. There he sacrifices some of the clean animals as an act of worship. The Lord is pleased and the Lord lets us know that he will never again destroy the whole earth until the day God changes everything and wraps up all of human history. The globe is going to be safe from total destruction like what Noah and his family experienced because God won't let it happen. Okay, that's the story. What are we supposed to do with it? It's a good story, right? What do we do with it? Let me share with you a few quick 
points of application before we wrap up our time together. First, what's God want you to do from this? Believe the flood was real. Christians, God wants you to believe this was real because it was. The first thing we've got to do today is recognize that what we read is a genuine account of a very real happening. Believing in the flood changes everything. Believing in the flood changes how you understand the claims of archaeologists and geologists about the age of the earth, about evolution, about the world we live in. It's all different because of the flood. The flood is a fact that is vital to our understanding of God, His mercy, His justice, His wrath, and the world He made. But why, Travis? Why believe in the flood? Why should I believe this is real? I could start pointing to evidence. There's all kinds of people that have done evidence and research to show you why you should believe it. But I'll give you one reason why. Jesus believed it. You know why you should believe the flood was real? Because Jesus believed the flood was real. In Luke 17, 26 and 27, Jesus said, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving, being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. If Jesus, our Savior, the living Son of God, believed that the Noah account was genuine, we should believe it too. To deny it denies a whole lot about who Jesus is. So you better buy this story, Christians. Two, point number two. Tremble at the consequences of unrighteousness. Tremble at the consequences of sin. This story should do that to you. The flood shows us the horrible impact of sin on humanity. Because mankind rebelled against God, mankind earned death. How can that be? How can the wages of sin be death, like Paul tells us in Romans 6.23? The answer is pretty simple, actually. God is holy. God's perfection is infinite. It is endless. And whenever any person falls short of the holiness of God... They fall infinitely short of God's standard. You ever think about that? Your tiniest mistake is an infinite gap between you and God. There's an infinite gap between our failure and God's perfection. And that is an infinite offense to the righteousness and the justice of God. And the Lord rightly should punish that sin with infinite wrath. And this is how sin merits death. Truly, this is how sin merits eternal destruction forever in hell. So know this, Christians. Know that our sin deserves destruction. And let that cause you to tremble deep down at our sinfulness. This is no laughing matter. This is no little cartoon. This is a big deal because sin deserves death to be delivered to us by God and that should shake us deep down. Third thing. See our need for righteousness. See our need for righteousness. 
You see, throughout this story, Noah is described as being righteous before God. He walked with God. He trusted God. He obeyed God. And without that kind of righteousness, Noah would have died along with everybody else. But also see that the righteousness of Noah came to him by faith. It's not that Noah never once failed in his life. We're going to see in the next chapter of his life that Noah was definitely not a perfect man. But God has regularly considered to be righteous those who are willing to put their trust in him and to obey his commands. God has regularly considered to be righteous those who have been willing to trust in him and obey his commands. Hebrews 11, verse 7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It was faith that made Noah an heir of righteousness. Genesis 6, 8 said Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Noah found it given to him as a gift. He didn't earn the favor of God by being a perfect dude. He wasn't as righteous as God is. But by trusting God and obeying God, God showered grace on Noah. You and I need the righteousness that only God can give us. And it comes to us in the same way it came to Noah. By the grace of God, through faith in God. How does that work? Point number four. See God's provision of salvation. See God's provision of salvation. See, this story could have been really, really dark. Could have been worse, but God chose to rescue for himself a people. God picked Noah. God saved Noah. God provided one way of salvation. You know what the way of salvation was? Get in the ark. To be in the ark is to live. To be outside the ark is to die. To be in the ark is to experience the mercy of God. To be outside the ark is to experience the justice of God. By the way, nobody either in the ark or out of the ark was treated wrongly by God. But you know what? Y'all, this is the gospel. God has made one and only one way of salvation, and that is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Just like the ark, Jesus is our salvation. To be in Christ is to live. To be apart from Christ is to die eternally. To be in Jesus is to have blessing forever. To be outside of Jesus is to suffer the wrath we deserve. The judgment of God is coming. And the only way to survive is to be sheltered by the perfect work of Jesus under the sacrifice of our Savior. So friends, know God made a way for us to be saved. And we have to trust Jesus enough to come to Him, just as Noah trusted God enough to step on board the ark. Believe in Jesus. Ask Him for mercy. Determine that you'll follow His commands and His word. Ask Him for salvation before it is too late. Fifth point, last point. Let God's mercy lead you to worship. Let God's mercy 
lead you to worship. It's interesting that this story all centers around the faithfulness of God. The way the arrangement of the story is done, the very center point is God remembering his promise to rescue Noah. Chapter 8, verse 1. Once Noah is rescued, what's he do? He walks off the ark, he builds an altar, and he worships the Lord. The proper response for anyone who has been rescued by God is to take action that glorifies the God who made you and who saved you. Worship is when you do that which demonstrates that God is the king and you're the servant. And that could be singing, that could be praying, that could be attending worship, that could be giving, that certainly could be and should be sharing the gospel with those who don't know it. But Christian, Christian, be sure of this. The only proper response to your salvation is that your life would glorify God through all kinds of acts of worship. Please don't think you're doing God a favor by being here. Do think that if you are responding to God rightly, worship is exactly what should be coming out of you. The flood is a mini picture of the good news of Jesus Christ. God is holy. We are sinners. God rightly could and should destroy us for our sin. But God, out of his mercy, provides the means of salvation. Everyone who enters the family of God is saved. All who refuse to come through Jesus refuse the grace of God and receive his judgment. Being saved always leads to lives of worship and obedience. May we see it. May we love it. May we share it with a world that's destined for destruction that is as sure and as horrible as the destruction that the lost world faced during Noah's day. And may we let it cause us to sing of the great and perfect God who has rescued us from his own wrath and given us life forever with him. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord God, Even now, even now, I find my heart straining because I know that we cannot personally fathom the horror of the flood, the immensity of your wrath, or the glory of grace. God, would you, by your grace, for your glory, Implant this deep in our hearts. Let us tremble. Let us marvel. Let us worship. We want to. And we know we'll get it wrong. But help us respond to you with lives of great gratitude. Great joy. Let us... Let us respond by truly, um, by truly doing our part to magnify your name. Whether that's sharing the gospel or just being part of doing the things that you want done in your church. God, let stories like this one help us trust you more. Help, help make us hate sin better. God, do what only you can do in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're going to stand together. We're going to sing a song of response here, or just one more song of worship. And then we will conclude our service.